Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce um, our guest, I just thank you for leaving reviews on iTunes about this podcast. We've been getting quite a few, and I really appreciate that. So continue to do that. It gives me um, feedback and also connects more with our podcast as you leave reviews, hopefully positive reviews. Uh, My guest on today's podcast is a married couple in their early 20s. Um, Allie and Keaton. I'm going to let Allie say your last name. Grunander. Grunander. And I'm going to say your last name correct the whole rest (laughs) of the podcast. Grunander. I'm going to read you listeners the message I got from Allie who bravely um, reached out and I'll give you an idea of what we're going to talk about. I came across your podcast and was touched by how raw and real it is. I know a lot of people, including members including members struggling with excruciating pain that comes from mental illness. Like I mentioned, I became extremely depressed and got severe anxiety while out on my mission. I had never experienced any any mental illness before. I returned home after three months and had to navigate through the next chapter of my life. Through my story, I've been able to help people, and I want to continue to help others going through similar experiences I want missionaries who return home early to never feel the shame that so many feel. I want people who struggle with mental health to know that it will get better no matter the pain. I am in a great place now and married to an amazing man. Heavenly Father is always in control and I now and I'm now thankful I had to walk blindly for a time. I want people to know that Heavenly Father has not forsaken them and that he is there even if it may not seem obvious. I know how easy it is it was to want to give up, but I'm so incredibly thankful I, I never did, and I want others to feel the hope for a better future. We could just stop the podcast right there, because <laughs> that's such a hopeful couple paragraphs. Um, so we're going to talk about, I'll just introduce Allie and Keaton. Allie is 21. Um, they live in Cedar Hills. She's a Lone Peak High School graduate. That's a high school in Utah County. Um, she served a mission in Auckland, New Zealand. She's in cosmetology school. Um, Keaton and Allie have been married about 18 months. Keaton's here also. We'll hear from Keaton. Um, one of the things that Allie wants to do that um, we've had experience in our home is um, as part of her education in cosmetology school to be able to do brides on their wedding day. And um, I know how important it is for bride's hair to be perfect on that day. (laughs) And um, I'm just so glad Allie's willing to share her story. Keaton is 23. He, like Allie, is a return missionary, served in Atlanta, grew up in Provo, Tempview High. Um, For anybody that's aware of Utah County rivalries, Lone Peak and Tempview are our rivals. And um, they were both rivals of our high school in Salt Lake. He served a mission, I think I said that, to Atlanta, Georgia. He's a personal financial planner, um, working on that at UVU, and currently is in a sales job. And they met, they were lined up by a friend. Is that okay for a bio? That's amazing. Thank you. So let's just get into this. Um, Ali, I'll ask you some questions. What led you to go on a mission? And had you ever experienced mental illness before? Yeah, so growing up, I had just a very normal, good life. I had a great family, great friends. And I had heard a lot about mental illness, but I am kind of ashamed to admit it now, but I'd hear that people had anxiety or depression. And there was a part of me that thought, my goodness, it's not that hard to be happy or just things like that. And um, because I was just a very happy, positive person. And And I had obviously been through trials like everyone, but I felt like I could get through those trials and still be hopeful, still have faith. And so when I heard that people were struggling with depression and anxiety, I I had a hard time understanding it and comprehending why they couldn't get through it. And I was at my freshman year at UVU. I have a later birthday, so I couldn't serve yet. And I was kind of in a weird place in my life. I was dating a really great guy at the time and things started to get a little bit more serious. And I remember just feeling like this was odd. Like I I just felt off about something and I felt like there was a part of my life that just didn't seem 
right. And I had always had the desire to serve a mission. And I kind of thought that that wasn't my path anymore, but I took a break and I realized that Heavenly Father was still directing me towards that path. And I was sitting at a farewell of one of my cute friends and I immediately just got the strongest impression that I needed to serve a mission. It was as if the Holy Ghost was literally sitting next to me. It was so strong and I never experienced anything like that. And that night I told my family, I'm like, well, I'm going on a mission. I'm starting my mission papers tomorrow. And and they were crying and they were happy. And and they always said that they knew that I would go. And that was just comforting knowing that I had that support. And so I started my mission papers. I did everything that I needed to do. And I got my call. And I remember that night so perfectly. I remember the excitement that I felt in the just the optimism. And I remember feeling just so amazed that Heavenly Father was allowing me to go teach his children. And I felt like that was such an honor and such a privilege. And and I got my call and I was called to serve in the New Zealand Auckland mission. And of course, that's the mission that everyone wants to go to. And, and I was thrilled. And I immediately knew that that's where I was supposed to serve. And and. The months leading up to it, I did everything I needed to do to prepare. And my excitement was just out of this world. I was so excited. And the day that I left on my mission, I remember going to the airport and saying those hard goodbyes, but also being so excited and so ecstatic to be able to leave. And And I remember sitting on the plane and it was a long plane flight. I, I think it was like 23 hours or something. And I just couldn't stop feeling excited. I knew that this was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. So we touched in New Zealand and I immediately knew that I was in a different country. Things were weird and we were driving on the wrong side of the road. And I was in a very tropical scenery, which I wasn't used to. And when we got to the MTC and all of the whirlwind of emotions that I had felt over the past 24 hours finally hit me. and. I got assigned my companions. I, I was actually in the only trio in the MTC at the time. And and they were both from the Philippines and, and they were amazing. They didn't speak much English, so that was difficult. But they gave us about an hour to kind of go shower or to take a nap or whatever we needed to do. And I remember closing the door in our little room. And I remember kind of just falling to the ground because I was so overwhelmed with emotion and And I started crying and I didn't know why I was crying. And I I thought, you know, maybe I'm just tired, but I felt very alone and I hadn't ever really felt that way before. And I remember just pleading with Heavenly Father, like, Heavenly Father, I I don't know why this is happening. I think it's just a lot going on. I just pray that I'll have the strength to get through this and that this feeling won't last. And as the MTC progressed, I remember... Everyone was kind of homesick at first and everyone kind of had a hard time adjusting. But I remember hearing all the missionaries say that they were so excited to be there. They didn't even miss their families anymore. They felt like this was exactly where they needed to be. And I felt the opposite. I felt alone and scared. And I'd find myself crying randomly, which is not me. And I just felt off. And I had a hard time because I would compare myself to these other missionaries who were excited and ready. And and I was sitting here feeling more alone than I had ever felt. And that was a hard adjustment. But luckily, you know, I, I flew out with 19 missionaries and I gained lots of great friendships. And so I felt a little piece of home and I felt like I was okay. And we left into the mission field. And I remember the day that my mission president was meeting with us for the first time. And I remember just feeling so empty and alone and scared. And I got assigned my mission companion and we grew to be really amazing friends. She, I'm convinced that, you know, Heavenly Father had a reason that we were paired together. And, and, we went to our apartment and my companion went and got in the shower. And I remember sitting on the floor of our apartment and 
I started shaking uncontrollably and I didn't know what was going on with me. I felt like I didn't have control over my body. And I remember just like sobbing and shaking and being really embarrassed that I was feeling this way because I didn't know why I had never felt like this before. And I just sat there and I was sweating and I was just in a panic. And I remember praying to Heavenly Father. And at the time, I really couldn't get words out. I was only able to mutter like, Heavenly Father, please help me. Please take this pain away. And it didn't go away. And that was frustrating because I was used to my prayers always being answered. And this continued on for days and weeks. And to the point where I I remember I was having so many, I realized at that point now that I was having panic attacks and that this wasn't just a temporary thing, that this was something that kept progressing. And it was something that was turning into a mess that I couldn't untangle anymore. And I think something about depression that if you haven't experienced yourself, it's it's a darkness that there's no other way to explain it other than just feeling overwhelmed and consumed by darkness and not knowing why this was happening to you. And I remember my mom before I left on my mission, she said, if something's not right, then you need to speak of it. You need to tell someone. And, you know, she said that whether it was a companion or a circumstance or whatever, but I took it to heart that, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm the person that's not right. I'm the person that there's something not right with. And my companion knew I was struggling and she suggested that I call the mission president. And so I finally gained the courage to call him one day and I kind of explained to him, you know, what was happening, the circumstance, how depressed I was. And he referred me to the mental health um, missionary in our mission. And I finally felt a little bit of relief, like, okay, I, I think I can do this. I think I can make it. And the day that he called me, we were sitting at church and I was in a Samoan ward. So I didn't understand any English. It was super hard. And I, you know, I didn't have time to listen because I didn't know what was being heard. So in my head, I was thinking all these horrible things and I was even more depressed. And I had a panic attack in the middle of church. And all of a sudden our phone rang and it was mental health missionary. And I immediately you know, grabbed my companion and we ran outside and he, his wife was talking to me and his wife was like, so we heard that you were struggling and he's actually not available today. Do you think that we could call you tomorrow? And it took everything in me, but I just was like, no, I, this can't wait. I'm, I'm really scared. And I started crying and she was like, oh no, okay, let me, let me grab him. And good job. Yeah. It was scary. It was very unlike me because I don't, I'm a perfectionist to say the least. And I have a hard time when something's wrong with me. I don't want other people to know almost. And he took me through an evaluation and like on a scale of one to 10, where are you with this, this, and this? And he got to the point where it asked if I was suicidal. And I remember being so ashamed and so terrified. And this is when I really broke down and I had to say yes. And I didn't know that I had reached that point. But once he had asked that question, I knew that I was at that point. And he, you know, told me that he was going to have me meet with a doctor and that I had to take, I don't know, 30 minutes a day to watch videos to kind of help me through it. And I remember thinking, okay, again, I felt hopeful again, but I started watching those videos and they weren't doing anything. And I would talk to him every week and it wasn't doing anything. And at this point, I honestly was kind of angry with God. And I remember I just would be like praying and just be like, Heavenly Father, I, you told me to come on a mission I'm doing it. I'm here on a mission. I'm being exactly obedient. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And then you're giving me the biggest trial I've ever had experience. And I was angry and I was frustrated and I didn't know why Heavenly Father was making me endure this trial. And it was kind of 
a tough pill to swallow because I couldn't feel the spirit anymore. My depression was so deep that I didn't even know why I was on a mission anymore. I remember at moments thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have a testimony anymore. The spirit just wasn't with me. And I didn't know how to gain that back. And I would, I would plead with Heavenly Father every day to just let me feel a little bit okay. And I wasn't sleeping. I was having stomach problems. And I think the pivotal moment for me was one night. It was getting really late and I still couldn't fall asleep. And this darkness was so consuming that I remember thinking to myself, I want my companion to like tie me to the bed so I don't do anything to hurt myself. I was so worried that I was going to hurt myself. And I was so worried that I was going to make a decision that I knew I didn't want to make, but I felt like I did at the time. And I pleaded with Heavenly Father for hours to just take this pain away from me so I could just sleep. If nothing else, I just wanted to be able to sleep. And Heavenly Father allowed me to fall back asleep that night. And and I think that's when I realized, okay, this is this is really bad. This is really scary. And I actually brought my journal from my mission. Um, and I last week was the first week that I pulled out my mission stuff. It's been two years, two more than two years. And I finally got the courage to pull out. And it was very emotional. I cried a lot. <laughs> but I just want to share this one section to kind of explain, you know, the depths of despair that I was in says, okay, well, here it is, the journal entry that I hope one day will make sense, that one day will help someone I love. I cannot and perhaps may never be able to describe the mental, physical, and spiritual pain I have experienced the last few days. The anxiety and depression has been so great, so extreme, I wanted to give up on everything. My body shakes. I couldn't stop crying. I felt helpless, alone, and terrified. At moments, the darkness and sadness consumed every ounce of my being. It is a pain I never knew could exist. And it says, Last night, the sorrow was so great, I pled with every ounce of my being for Heavenly Father to release this burden from me. And I think that that accurately describes how horrible it was. And I met with my mission president. He sent me to a doctor. We got I got put on medication. And at that point I knew that I didn't, I didn't want to go home. That wasn't an option. I remember telling my mission president that I will do literally anything to stay out because I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And I remember meeting with the doctor and her asking me questions and kind of having to go through all of that again. And it was really hard, but when I got put on the medication, I felt extremely hopeful. And a week went by and it was almost like my anxiety and depression was worse. And that can happen. I later found out that that can happen with medication. It can get worse before it gets better. But it was almost to the point of no return. I was so depressed. I had so much anxiety. I Depression anxiety is weird because you don't have control over your mind. It's as if there's another person in your mind that's controlling you and it's terrifying. You feel like you're not even in your own body. And I, I think that I reached a point where I wasn't sure how I was going to continue to stay out. And we were at a zone conference one day and I had the biggest panic attack yet. And I ran out the door. I grabbed the, um, like missionary nurse on the way out. And I told her, I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. I physically, mentally, emotionally, I cannot go on. And after the conference was over, she grabbed the mission president and we sat in her room in this little church building. And, and I kind of told him what was going on and he got really serious. And he said, Sister Erickson, when you walked through that door, the spirit told me very strongly that you are no longer meant to be here. And 
that there's another thing waiting for you at home. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember just feeling so much relief finally. Like if he says it's okay for me to go home, then I can go home. And I felt like this weight lifted off my shoulders and finally feeling like I could be freed, like that this could be over. And he booked me, you know, flights and I really struggled. It was about three days before I left and I really struggled. I went back and forth and back and forth, just trying to, um, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> just trying to figure out if this was what I was supposed to do. And I remember calling him and just saying, President, why is this happening? Like, should I be going home? And he said, no, Sister Erickson, you need to, you need to remember, like you, you do need to return home. And like I said, there's something else waiting for you at home. And so the day came that I left and it was quite the journey. I remember getting to the airport. It was really late at night. My family was waiting there for me. And I was just filled with emotion as I, you know, kind of ran to them. And, and I finally felt like, okay, I'm home. I can do this. I'm, I'm not in a foreign country. And I'm surrounded by people I know who love me. And I went to the stake president that night and my panic attacks were a whole nother level. And I was sobbing and he released me. And I remember getting home and I was changing into my pajamas and I, I could not take my tag off. It was the weirdest feeling I felt. Like, okay, once I take this off, I'm not a missionary anymore. And I don't have at least a purpose anymore. And that was, that was a really hard moment for me. But um, life went on and it wasn't easy. It was so hard. I, I remember my mom is, was so inspired and I met with several doctors to change my medication and I met with a counselor and being able to talk to him was amazing because he didn't have any emotional attachment like my parents maybe did or friends or whoever. And so it was just an outside source who I felt like I could be honest with and he didn't judge me, which was extremely refreshing because I felt like if I told other people what had happened and they didn't understand it and they would think I was crazy or they would think that something was wrong with me. And I remember meeting with him and him just telling me like, this is okay. This is normal. Like it's going to be okay. And just feeling relief in that sense, knowing that other people had gone through this and that I wasn't the only one. And he helped me through some of the darkest times and it was hard. I Rehashing everything and talking about everything, I mean, it's still hard to do. But when it was so raw, it was hard explaining to him everything that I had gone through and rehashing that because it brought a lot of unwanted feelings and unwanted memories, you know, flood back into my mind. And so every time I went to therapy, I felt like I had to dig up old dirt that I didn't want to. It felt like that every time. And it was exhausting. It, it would pretty much knock me out for the day. And I would be really depressed that whole day. But he helped me get through moments of starting a job and having so much anxiety to be around people. And that kind of shame that I felt. And then also just the nervousness that what if I have a panic attack? What if I'm in the middle of work and I have a panic attack? And he was able to help me through all of those things. Um, along with, I had the support of my family and and friends and ward members, but I, I, I did know that there was a little bit of judgment and people who haven't under, you know, haven't experienced anxiety and depression themselves. It's really hard to understand 
And it's really hard to picture what it was like. And like I said, I was always, you know, the happy person. I was always doing what I thought was the right thing. And and that's how other people perceived me. So here I am just broken. And now they're seeing this version of me. And that was, that was really hard. And I was embarrassed. And I felt like my anxiety and depression defined me. And I felt like I wasn't even a person anymore. I felt like I was just anxiety and depression. And about a month and a half later, I met my sweet Keaton and I did not want to date anyone at the time. I was very against it. I wanted to work on myself, but my father always has a plan and he knew that I needed Keaton and he knew that Keaton would be able to help me and, you know, now looking back when my mission president said there's something else waiting for you at home, it, I'm 100% convinced that it was, it was Keaton and him waiting for me. Um, Allie, that was a great segment. Um, I, you've helped a lot of listeners, a lot of listeners that wish they could crawl through the mic and give you a big hug <laughs> for your courage to share your story and be so honest and vulnerable. And you said some really you said some things that I want to just make sure that were very profound for me. Um, I love that your counselor asked you if you were suicidal, and you said um, no. I I'm glad he asked that question. I think it was he because I knew that I was once he asked the question, mm-hmm. and I think that's just I, listeners. I didn't know if it was okay to ask somebody if they're suicidal. I thought maybe you'd ask a softer question like, are you going to hurt yourself or you in a dark place? But actually asking mm-hmm. someone directly if they're suicidal doesn't increase the risk they're suicidal. It just helps them understand that you're safe for them to fully open up. Mm-hmm. And in your case, it helped clarify for you, somebody asking that question, where you really were. Yeah. And that's, a, that's really powerful. So, um, and I love you being sort of open with the, the you know, this culture of wanting to be okay and and solve everything and a puritan i can do it on my own and mm-hmm. especially in the mission field and then being the shame that comes with everything and I, I shame for me is such a key part of your story but it's something i thinking your story is helping to de-shame because there's nothing you did wrong here this is not a spiritual weakness mm. you didn't go on your mission with the intent to have this happen it seems like you did everything within your control um, the cumulative effort you put in during that period of time kind of blows my mind of what you did to try to solve this with really no owner's manual, no history, no other people that have walked this road. And I think you just did a remarkable job. And I think I'm glad you're alive and I'm glad that you've been able to move forward. I also think it's okay to be angry at God. Mm. I, I think he can handle that. I think it's a very logical, if I told you not to be angry, given everything that had happened, I think I'm, I'm muting a normal human emotion that you need to express to move forward and to heal. And so I think it's okay to be angry. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of agency kicks in after a period of time, what you do with that anger. Um, and it sounds like you're not angry at God anymore. No. Um, so those are some really just kind of minor points within your broader story that are very helpful. Um, What would you say, and you kind of did this in your journal writing going forward, but now what would you say if you could talk to yourself in New Zealand on those darkest days? That's a really great question. It's you sort of talking to people that are in the middle of darkest days right now. Yeah. Um, I know that for me, it's hard when someone tells you it's going to be okay. Um, because you don't feel like it's going to be okay. And you could have the most amazing person who you respect tell you that life is going to get better and that everything happens for a reason. But when you're in those dark moments, it doesn't matter who tells you what, it, you don't believe it because you're in so much despair. And I think navigating that, you know, when I've been able to help people who are in the middle of it, I think just knowing 
that you're not alone and that there are other people who have experienced it and that there are, uh, there's other people who are in the same place as them. And those moments that I wanted to give up, I sit here on the other end of it and I have a very happy life and I'm happily married and I'm doing what I love. And it kind of makes me sick thinking about what if I would have done something? What if I would have decided that it was the end when I have all of these great blessings now? And like I said, I don't think there's much you can do to help someone who's going through, you know, the trials of mental illness, but just keeping the hope not even necessarily the faith, but just a small glimmer of hope that things will get better. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, the best days are yet to come and that Heavenly Father is there even when it feels like he could not be more far away. And just knowing that your life will get so much better and you just have to hold on and it doesn't have to be perfect. And it doesn't have to be graceful, but just keep holding on. And Heavenly Father will not forsake you. He has never forsaken you. And that everything will soon get better. Good answer. How did, did you think this is a spiritual weakness at time? That this is um, because I haven't prayed enough, I didn't prepare enough, I had past sins, I have current bad thoughts. I'm, I'm not yeah. trying to make up stuff, but a lot of missionaries, when they have these difficult emotional experiences, they don't have the context to separate it because all we talk about is being spiritually worthy. Mm-hmm. So if things start to go south on the mission, they think this is a spiritual weakness and they start to try to connect dots that aren't there when it's not a spiritual weakness that's not solved with increased spiritual behavior mm-hmm. or increased, you know, scripture study, prayer, fasting. Yeah. I did have moments like that. I did have moments where I remember just thinking, everything I've done in my life has prepared me for this point. I got a strong answer to go on a mission. Here I am. I'm being exactly obedient. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Why is it not good enough? I, I thought that several times. I remember thinking, what have I done wrong? Why are you allowing me to experience something so horrible when I'm here to, you know, bring your children towards you? And and I I think I I did feel very much at times that you know, Heavenly Father didn't care about me anymore and that he didn't love me or he loved me less than other missionaries who were seeing this great success and they're the happiest they've ever been. And it was frustrating. It was definitely frustrating. And and I prayed to know what I could do better. And everyone says, you know, forget yourself and, and go towards the work. And I tried everything in my power to do that, but I couldn't stop feeling this overwhelming grief and despair. And I did feel, I did feel like, you know, what, what am I doing wrong? Why is this not good enough? I just think that's such a tender subject that needs to be talked about more in our church is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, if I had been your companion or a priesthood leader and said, you know, Sister Erickson, you just need to lose yourself in the work. Mm-hmm. I'm adding to your shame because you want to do that with all your heart. Exactly. And if I just give you these simple formulas, because this isn't a spiritual weakness, this is an emotional challenge. Mm-hmm. To solve this with spiritual tools, I'm just adding to your emotional load and I'm creating shame and I'm putting it all back on you that if you just did something different. And I have, you know, I've certainly could have been guilty at that as I've heard more stories on better understanding. It sounds like you don't have scrupulosity for our listeners. Scrupulosity is something we've talked about. It's sort of this spiritual OCD where you just, assume, you just conclude that everything that's not working out is because you're unworthy. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go through this scru- this cycle of confessing and getting momentary relief. But um, 
it sounds like you didn't have scrupulosity, but if someone's not familiar with that, I sure encourage you to check out our episodes on scrupulosity because that can be a very difficult part of someone's emotional journey. Absolutely. Where they just conclude because of spiritual OCD, they're outside of God's love Mm -hmm. and that they're not redeemable. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about PTSD. Um, It would be logical for you to have PTSD. (laughs) Yes. And tell our listeners if you have PTSD and where you are with that and and maybe help our listeners understand what that is. Yeah. I, my counselor once told me that mental illness is the second worst pain a human can experience next to being burned alive by fire. And that was very powerful. And I think it describes it perfectly. It, it really is that horrible and painful. And even though I'm in a better place, it's not perfect. I still struggle. I still have days where you know, I do have so much anxiety and so much depression and, and there's little trigger points for me. Um, when someone mentions New Zealand, I immediately kind of get a sick feeling. When someone talks about missions, I don't get me wrong. I'm so incredibly supportive of missions still. And I think that everyone should go on a mission. It just, you know, wasn't the perfect thing for me. And when people talk about missions and how great their missions were, especially, you know, all my friends served missions and, and that's triggering to me because why did they have such great missions? And, and I didn't, I have certain, you know, there's been moments where I hear a hymn that reminds me of my mission and I immediately have a panic attack and no, not that long ago, we were at church and we, you know, we're doing it at our house because of the pandemic and a song came on that immediately triggered me and I had to go upstairs and I had to go into my room and I had to just kind of cry it out and let myself feel all the things that I needed to feel and then realize that I'm in a better place and, and that I'm not in New Zealand anymore and that it was going to be okay. And I've driven down streets that have the same street name as streets in New Zealand. And I've had to pull over because I have a panic attack. Um, things that, you know, like I said, opening my bag of all my mission stuff, that was, that brought back major PTSD. That was hard. That was really hard. And just little things I I still find myself, you know, when I have those moments where I struggle with depression, anxiety, going back to my mission and just thinking, oh my gosh, if I didn't go on my mission, then I wouldn't be struggling with this. But I've learned to be thankful for my mission and I know I wouldn't be where I am without it. And even though I have those moments and they don't happen as often as they used to, but they still happen. And it's crazy. It It's insane. Like I'll, I'll just be going about my day and something will trigger me. I have nightmares about New Zealand. It happens often. I will have a dream that I have to go back on a mission and I'll wake up in the middle of the night panicking and sweating or, you know, the next morning I'll wake up and I immediately just know it's not going to be a very good day because my emotions are so wrapped up in that dream. And even though I know it's not real, it felt real. And I had to experience that all over again. And that happens that happens quite often. And that's something that I've kind of had to learn to manage and know that it's okay and not let it affect my mood, you know, in the coming days. Thanks for talking about PTSD, Allie. And um, I just recognize hearing your story. And I think listeners, I hope we all understand this, that people have what I would call church-generated PTSD. And it, and yours isn't around the doctrine, obviously. Mm. It's not around, it's around this difficult experience you have, and then you get re-triggered. And so sometimes you have to, a song that can be like the balm mm. of Gilead for one member can be very difficult for you. And it doesn't mean you're less faithful or less committed to the gospel, but I think it helps me understand I need to if I understand PST, PTSD, I need to give people space. Mm-hmm. 
And if they need to not go to church for a certain week or like you did, just leave the Zoom meeting or whatever, just to trust them that this isn't a sign of unfaithfulness or a sign of lack of commitment or mm-hmm. a spiritual weakness. It's just a coping mechanism to deal with the trauma that they felt and a way to move forward. And and so it, I think you're doing a really good job. Thank you. Now, I, don't get, I want to get Keaton involved here because you talked about Keaton and you found him. I think you kind of thought, I'm going to get myself to where I need to be and then I'm going to start dating. And Keaton yeah. comes along. And I like the way you know, recognize that was part of Heavenly Father's plan. But Keaton, here's a question for you. What was your initial reaction after Allie told you her story? Um, she was pretty open about it, even from the uh, from the first day uh, that we went on our, you know, we met each other, our first date. And um, basically, she told me, you know, she was 19 at the time, I remember. I believe so. And uh, she told me that she had already been on a mission. And so I obviously knew that she came home early and I didn't really think anything of it. She obviously on a first day didn't, you know, dive too deep into that kind of stuff and what she's uh, shared already. But um, it just, I, I didn't really think anything of it. it I, I remember being my younger self or I remember being my younger self. I remember that being something that may not be that I would, you know, necessarily be okay. I feel pretty awful saying this, but it didn't seem like a good thing to, you know, to me to have someone come home early from a mission and growing up in Provo. I remember the older I got, the more and more I discovered that people come home a lot more than I, you know, initially remember when I was younger. And so, um, it was pretty interesting how it just didn't affect me, how it, I really didn't focus too much on what Allie had done, but who she was and who she had become because of those days that she spent in New Zealand serving. Tell us the things that drew you to Allie then when you were dating her. She was really easy to be around, really easy to talk to. We still talk about our first date sometimes. It was just over in Provo, pretty close to where I grew up. And so we'll drive past it pretty often. Um, and we just talked about how comfortable and how, you know, great, you know, our first dates were, how it was just, uh, just not only a lot of fun, but it was just, um, it kind of just left you wanting to just not go home <laughs> and just, you know, continue just to, just to hang out and, you know, learn more about each other. What was different from Allie from the other women you dated? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot of things. I would say I really loved her honesty because she was open about coming home early from her mission. And then not too um, later, she shared a good little chunk of the story that she's just shared today. And I could tell that she wasn't ashamed of what she had gone through and how it was affecting her at the time. And she was just a genuine person. And it was just someone that I you know, know that I could trust. I knew I could just be around her and also be genuine and be accepted. So that was, that was huge in Allie. Why did you not pull away from her once she learned about her mental illness um, and being an early release missionary? Um, and maybe you've kind of answered that with just what drew you to her. To her. Yeah, I, it was really at first before all of the thoughts of marriage and all that, you know, getting engaged and all those thoughts came in, it was really amazing to see how I learned from her, how I understood more about anxiety and mental health and just how big of a deal it actually is. And essentially that knowledge that I gained was turning me into a better person and more understanding. And I could see myself changing which is like one of the, you know, the main things that I wanted in a wife, someone who wanted me to, you know, wanted me to not only be better, but also inspired me to be a better person. And that's something that I saw every day with Allie, just because of, like I said earlier, of how genuine and just how big of a heart she had. It's a great answer. It's hard to understand mental illness when you haven't experienced it. Just what, what 
share with our listeners kind of for someone who hasn't experienced mental illness and maybe like you talked about with your younger self, um, didn't understand much about this and perhaps was even judgmental. What if, what would you share with people now? Man, I would share a lot. Um, I've learned that mental illness and um, anxiety, depression, you name it, it's, it's all, it's literally like, you know, it's a, it's a sickness. It's not necessarily something that um, is just a, you know, a stage of life that some people have to go through, but, and it's not just a, an attitude. I used to think, uh, I, I get sad. I get, I get, you know, depressed and anxious at times. And so, you know, what's the big deal, but I've learned that it's literally something that needs to be treated like any other sickness, like a, you know, a broken leg and you need to put a cast and then you know, that kind of equals, you know, medication and, you know, therapy just to, you know, take care of your mind. And so if I were to <laughs> say something to myself seven, eight years ago, or however long it's been since I was, you know, in the early stages of high school, it'd just be, you know, these, it's a serious thing. It's very real. And, you know, this is something that requires not only spiritual help, but also a lot of attention on the mental and physical side of things. Excellent answer. What was the hardest realization while dating? It was, it was tough to realize that not only was she, you know, struggling at times when we were dating, um, with those feelings of anxiety and depression. And no matter how much fun we were having together, no matter how much we wanted to be together some days, like I wasn't necessarily needing to be part of the process at that time of her, of her healing that day. Or if she was really struggling, I had to kind of just take a step back, let her figure it out. Because just because I'm a good thing in her life didn't mean that I was going to make things better at the time. She needed to take the proper steps and the proper um, just kind of recovery process with other things other than me. That's what do you do now when Ali has a bad day? That's a really good question. And it's still something that I think we both, um, you know, try to figure out what's best, you know, just to help us make, just to help us make us feel better. I would say my go-to is just to, you know, just be with her, be there. Um, definitely don't use the phrase that, you know, Hey, it's just, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, snap out of it. All of that stuff is just going to make it worse. It's about letting them know it's okay to feel like this. It's okay to be angry and not necessarily saying, I know what, I know how you feel. I know how you feel right now. I know what you're going through because that's completely untrue. It's more so, I know that this is awful, but it's okay to, to feel like this right now. I'm here for you. Let me know what I need to do for you. And we're going to get through this together. Can I say something just real quick? A huge thing about Keaton is he's a, he's a very good listener. And I think a lot of times when I'll tell him about the anxiety that I'm having, I, I don't necessarily want him to fix it. I just want him to listen. And he's very good at that. And just being with him, he's my safe place. And just him being around me, even if we're not even speaking, just having him there with me makes me know that it's it's going to be okay. I like that. And our elders corn president told a story. His wife's brother died by suicide and his brother's wife, it's a different situation, obviously, was really struggling. And he was trying to figure out what he could do as her spouse to really help her. And in a lot of thought and prayer, he came to the realization he couldn't be her savior, but he could be her husband. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a parallel here where Keaton can't be your therapist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he can't, but he can be your husband. And I think that's relieving for us as spouses that we can't, maybe men do this more than women, but maybe not. We just want to fix everything. We want to make everything right. And I think that's an undue burden potentially on a spouse that, that the, even the one struggling doesn't want necessarily their spouse to fix everything. Just what you said, Allie, is just listen. Mm -hmm. 
and hold their and and not give simple answers like Keaton suggested, not just dis, be dismissive. And um, so that's just some thoughts. Um, Keaton, why this is a, I try not to ask leading questions, but this is one that I think you have thought about and have an answer to, but why do you think you're going to be parents one day? Why do you think Allie's journey with mental illness makes her a better mother? And, um, I'd have to say the fact that she's been through all of this, I think gives definitely me, I'm not sure about you, but you know, a lot more confidence in dealing with this in the future. Obviously it's going to be hard just because Allie has, you know, gone through this doesn't make her an expert and knows how to fix everything. But knowing that this is an increasingly, you know, a problem that gets more serious, I'd say as time goes on, as far as um, just in the youth, uh, I think Allie's journey with mental health, she'll be just that much more um, able to help our children through things like that, which I know you, we hope that they don't have to go through, you know, you know, some awful things that are involved with anxiety and depression. But if any of that arises, which is, you know, it's pretty likely, you know, Allie knows at least kind of what they're going through, not their exact like feelings and everything, but, um, she'll have that confidence. She'll know it's going to be okay. And, you know, take the right approach to those things. Great answer. What are your thoughts as you think about uh, being a future mom that's had a journey with mental health? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like everything I've gone through has made me a different person. It really has my, the way I see the world is, and the way I see people is very different than what it was in high school and and before I see everyone for more of who they are like in the inside and know that even if people say that they have the perfect life, they don't and that they're human. And I've been able to have a lot more empathy for people. Um, even if they're not necessarily struggling with anxiety or depression, but just going through hard things and just being that listening ear and helping them through it, I feel like I've been able to to be able to gain knowledge of how to help people that way. And, and even just, like I said, having that empathy for them and being able to see how they feel more clearly and seeing people more than you know, caring for people more than I care about myself. I think that my perspective has definitely changed on that. I care way more about what, how other people are feeling than, than I do myself. And I, you know, I wish that it would have always been like that. I think it's natural for us to always care more about ourselves, but I wish in my earlier years, I would have been more understanding of people. And I think that that'll be a good tool for me when I become a mom to be able to, I guess, have, you know, more tools in my toolcase to be able to, to help them. Will you tell your kids about your journey with mental health at the right age? Oh, absolutely. Why? Why not just never talk about this again? Yeah, I, I absolutely will. I'm very open about it. I, you know, when I first got home, I was kind of ashamed of it, but now I don't feel that way. Now I see it as a strength, I guess. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's been a journey to get here, but now I see it as a blessing and a strength. And yeah, I just feel, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of losing my, my train of thought, but. I really love your answer there, Allie, because I think if I were somebody in your life and said, Allie, now that you're better or mostly better, and I know you don't ever talk about this again, don't share it with anybody mm-hmm. that I'm just adding back to your shame. This is an embarrassment. This is something you ought to not be sharing. Mm-hmm. So I love all your answers about this, that you look at this as a, as a, a tool to help your own children and you will talk to them about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I like going back to why Keaton fell in love with you, you know, in those first visits. Um, part of it was just the quality of the conversations you were having, if I'm understanding what, and that Keaton felt safe being with you and talking to you and vulnerability breeds vulnerability and vulnerability breeds connection. And, and that's, you know, sometimes in our congregations where it's hard to be vulnerable or it's, you know, it's hard to be real and make real connections. And I'm Mm -hmm. not trying to be critical there, but I think we need to be able to create um, real connections and be vulnerable at the right appropriate times with the right appropriate people because it really helps heal them. Absolutely. And I love the way you've kind of started your relationship together. I love that these dates were not, I don't sense they were overly planned and overly structured and no. you went to the most <laughs> no. expensive restaurant or the most yeah. expensive activity. No. It just sounds like you spent time together mm-hmm. and just got to know each other mm-hmm. and I have to confess, listeners, and I told this to Keaton while you were out of the room, is I had a checklist when I was Keaton's age, and I had all these things that I wanted my wife, and I would have ruled somebody like Allie out because she was an early missionary and she worked on her mental health. And I recognize that that checklist mentality is flawed because it would have prevented me from finding somebody that really had the attributes I was looking for. I thought the checklist would lead me to the attributes, but I recognize, and Keaton's already shared this, that the attributes you have, the person you are, the Christ-like ability, your ability to bring hope and healing came through these things I would have ruled you out. Yeah. And I, I feel so blessed to have someone, like you said, it would be easy to kind of walk away from it and I feel so blessed that I met Keaton because it was hard and I was hard on him sometimes and Hmm. I made his life difficult. I think that we both could agree on that, but he didn't run and it didn't scare him. And I can't imagine if after I told him, you know, my story that he would have left. I think it's very common for all of us to have a checklist. I know I used to have one. I I know I used to think of all the qualities that I would like and both of us are not perfect and we have qualities that we definitely can work on. But I think what makes our marriage strong is just always being there for each other and acknowledging that we have those faults and helping each other through those. A um, couple things, I love that, and a couple things were on my checklist for my wife, and um, I kind of wanted to marry someone from Utah, because mm-hmm. I grew up in Utah, and I thought it would just be cool, and I wanted to marry someone that served a mission, and the woman I married, Sheila, my wife of 30 years, is from Texas, <laughs> and didn't serve a mission, but um, she is one of the most you know spiritually mature, spiritually thoughtful, spiritually deep. And we've learned in our family to love Texas. And I've just loved Texas. <laughs> and I would be really sad if we didn't have Texas a part of our family culture. Yeah. And so I just, I encourage us to be more flexible than I was in my <laughs> 20s and le- and less rigid and, and maybe more acceptable the spirit that would guide me in a way that finding the spirit did guide me. And that's why I'm hopeful that's when I meet a couple like you. It just gives me hope that where you are um, is a sign to me of us progressing as a culture and as a church. I read a quote a lot, Allie. Um, Jake Watts gave me this several years ago. It's from Henry Noren. It's called The Wounded Healer. And this is who you are. And I share this on the podcast every now and then. A minister's service, and that's you, Ali will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Mm. So you know this desert. It's in New Zealand. Mm. This beautiful tropical area (laughs) is a symbolic desert. And as you read from your journal, and I think it's really cool you wrote this down. You'll read those journal entries to your sons and daughters. Yes. And they will give them hope. You'll read them in Young Women's Lessons, Release Society Lessons, um, in appropriate places. But your story plus your writings 
will help other people have hope and help lead them out of that figurative desert. Yeah. And to where you are now in this beautiful marriage and this beautiful um, looking forward and now using your experience to help others. I think it's, you know, I just, I think you've completed your wonderful mission in some ways. You completed it when you came home and you were served honorably. And But I think your mission has been also just this journey you've had since you left New Zealand. I think you've still been on your mission. Yeah. In some ways, you didn't take off that badge. Mm. And you've just been continuing to grow and learn and have Keaton come into your life to be married. And now, because of this experience, heal and give hope to people in a way that was never possible. Yeah. And as you know, it was Heavenly Father's plan for you. But it's a brutal plan. Yes, it and is. And I'll just kind of turn it back to either of you for last thoughts. Yeah. Um, as we were recording this, I had a thought come into my head. And I don't think that there's anything that breaks my heart more than people who may have a different situation than I do. Um, you know, having a loving family and an accepting family of mental illness and I know a lot of people don't have that. And I know a lot of people feel the same shame that I did and they hide from it and they don't, you know, seek to have those resources like medication and, and therapy. I'm a firm believer that Heavenly Father can only help us so far, but he gave us these blessings of modern medicine and all of that. And he wants us to use that. He wants us to use those aids that he's given us. And I just encourage anyone who may be listening that's struggling with mental illness and just feeling like there's no hope. I promise you that there is hope and that if you at least just reach out to one person, your, your life will change. And it's scary and it's hard to reach out to one person and to be vulnerable and, and to express, you know, those dark feelings that you feel inside of yourself. But it's so freeing to be able to express it, even if they can't fully understand it. It feels like a weight's been lifted off your shoulders. And, and there's so many people who are ready to love you and embrace you and it doesn't have to be a taboo subject anymore. Everyone goes through it and there's different levels of it, but everyone experiences it. And, and even if it's not in your own family or your friends, there's someone out there who is ready and willing and prepared to help you get better. Keaton, any final thoughts from you? Um, I just have to say, make a comment on just how far I've come as far as uh, learning to accept the fact that mental illness and anxiety is a real problem. Um, I know that I haven't been able to, you know, I haven't experienced this myself as far as severe anxiety or depression, but I have seen how medication, therapists, counselors, even ecclesiastical leaders um, aren't necessarily a crutch. Going to them for help is not something to be ashamed of. You're not becoming reliant on something that's outside. Um, but it's a, it's a blessing that's been given to us. Heavenly Father cares about us, and the proof is right there. Like Ali said, we have you know family is there for you, and um, medication therapists, like I said, and counselors. Those are all just proof that Heavenly Father is prepared to help you deal with this. It's great. Just, I've shared this before on the podcast, but for, I'll just share it again, listeners. I've had a little time with mental illness in my own life. I had saw therapists as a teenager, and then I saw therapists as, as a YSA bishop. And I remember the shame I felt around that. Um, I thought, I remember actually getting out of my car and dry, and walking to the door and thinking, what would a YSA think if they saw their bishop going to see a therapist? And I actually, if I could do that whole experience again, I would still go see a therapist. Mm. And I'm glad I did. And she helped me. 
and my situation wasn't nearly as severe as yours, not to make like you feel shame that yours was worse than mine, but just it was more moderate. And, but I wish I had actually at times told the YSAs that I was seeing a therapist. Yeah. And because I, you helped me understand that talking in appropriate ways, like Elder Holland did with his own journey with mental health and his talk about a broken vessel, I think it's what it's titled. Yes. That at times that vulnerability would have allowed the YSAs to open up with me. And they may not have opened up about mental illness, but they may have just said, he is a safe person or she, in your case, is a safe person. And I can open up about what's going on in my life if he's willing to be vulnerable about seeing a therapist. And, I, and my love for him and respect and the mantle of a, as a bishop doesn't change. And I didn't realize that at the time. And that's something that's come to me since then that I wish I could do a do-over. Because um, you're teaching me about the shame that I felt and that I shouldn't have felt. And so, Ali and Keaton, and say your last name, Keaton. Grunander. I knew <laughs> I was going to mess it. Grunander. Um, you two are great. And Thank I you. just, Thanks. I do think of your future kids and just this combined life experience that you have together, including this. And I think there will be incredible paydays where you are able to connect with the kid on an issue, and you will recognize it's because of this journey, both of you, and the way you'll be able to connect with other people in your circle of influence, family members, or in church assignments. And so I love the way this experience happened to you at this stage of life, because you've got all these decades ahead of you. And so with that, this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.